aspect of the art world have I not touched on yet? If you know any arts attorneys, creative psychologists, or any other profession that somehow touches the Venn diagram of the art world, get in touch with me. Are there questions that you have sitting around that you wish were answered in order to assist you in being more successful in your creative endeavors? Tell me, and I'll reach out to those people and get them on the podcast. Send me an email at matt, M-A-T-T, at wisefoolpod.com or DM me on Instagram or Facebook. Give me some names, some contacts, some professional people that work in different aspects of the art world so that I can help you be more successful in your creative endeavors. I would appreciate your support by becoming part of our Patreon account. You can find it at patreon.com slash thewisefool. If you're enjoying the conversations and learning from the insights from our guests, I would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As much as it pains me, I'm trying to get better at my self-promotion, so... If after hearing this conversation, you want to know more about me and my artwork, please go to my website, matthewdoles.com, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S.com. If you want to know more about some of the people and businesses mentioned in this episode, links to them will be included in the show notes. Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Michael Shaw. Like George Bernard Shaw, as I sometimes say, for for people familiar with that late writer. As we should hope most people are familiar with him, but, you know, you can't guarantee that. So one of the questions I always like to do to start off is to learn a little bit of background. So, like, when you how did you even get into the creative industries in the first place? Did you have creative parents? Did you have some great teacher? Like, how did you sort of find your path to being a creative person? Well, I love that you use the term creative industries, uh, first of all, (laughs) because that makes it sound pretty highfalutin. I am a longtime artist. And while my mom herself was an artist for a long time, she transitioned to being a curator slash museum director at a certain point. So, So there was definitely clearly a lot of influence there. And but it was freshman year of undergraduate college when I took a drawing class I I was undeclared freshman year and my second it was a trimester system you know uh, fall winter and spring and in my second semester winter I just decided to sign up for a couple of art classes I don't even remember exactly why other than on this sounds good maybe I thought it wouldn't it wouldn't be so academically rigorous I, I, I honestly don't remember but Long story short, I took a drawing class and the TA, this graduate student named Jeremy, was a really charismatic and amusing, funny guy. And we sort of conspiratorially made fun of the uh, teacher himself uh, from time to time. But anyway, this guy, Jeremy, said a lot of memorable things. And and through, through that dialogue and the class generally, I started to wonder things like 
do you have to know how to draw to be an artist or be a good artist? You know, these kinds of questions, which I don't know how much people grapple with that. You know, do you need to be able to draw well to be an artist question? It seems kind of very quaint at this point, but that was kind of a one way in for me. And long, you know, I, I basically t started taking more and more art classes and by my sophomore year, I was an art major. And so that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the end. What school? <laughs> uh, UC Santa Barbara, my freshman year, and then UC Irvine, my sophomore year, and then UCLA after that. And now, and now you have moved on and you do a lot of things. Like I have been looking through your CV and doing research about you. You've been, you are very active in many different elements of the arts industry. I, wow, I, I didn't realize that I was so active, but um, perhaps, yeah. You look active on paper. Yeah, maybe, maybe, sure. So you started, you have the, the Conversation Art podcast that you started back in 2011. So that was kind of early in podcasting. So like what brought you to doing it way back then? I had a radio, very strong, heavy radio interest and had done some interning and whatnot around LA and... And then podcasts started creeping up, you know, and particularly WTF, which was a comedian talking to other comedians. So I thought, oh, what about an artist talking to other artists? So long story short, that's that was sort of the the uh, provocation or the uh, the invitation to start a podcast myself. Right. And I have to admit, like, I've sort of based my podcast, quite honestly, a little bit on yours. I apologize for that. But Oh, well, I, I, I guess I should be honored. Thank you. Okay. Well, take it that way. That's great. I like that. Good. The, you know, for me, the big idea is, is that I feel like everybody in the arts world seems to know their own little niche thing, but we don't know how they all sort of in interconnect and sort of overlap in a Venn diagram kind of thing. And so I'm trying to find ways to make it so that everybody who listens can sort of start to learn the interconnectedness of how the entire system works. Um, right. Because... Like I know artists and academia because I taught, for, I've been teaching for 20 years, but I don't know galleries and institutions very well, and I don't know the granting system very well or residencies very well. Um, and so I feel like there are lots of people out there that basically they, they know their own little niche thing, but there's a lot of things we still could learn about how to expand our horizons and make all of our individual artistic and creative careers more successful. Mm -hmm. I was just talking the other day with, I'm currently going through a series of co-hostings with Deb Cloud Mann, who is a gallerist here in LA and has more availability during this pandemic. And I was just telling her, which this kind of came out of an anecdote based on a New Yorker profile of Jordan Wolfson that we were talking about, that when people say it's such a small world, you know, like in the art world, they say, oh, you know, everybody knows it's such a small world. You know, oh, you know, so-and-so, it's such a small world. I always like to push back against that because as you just sort of implied, there are so many different worlds or communities or niches in the art world. And they, there is, are these Venn diagrams where they cross over. But to me, it feels awfully large. I mean, there's so many and there's so many parts of the art world that are very restricted you know, restricted entrance, particularly in the collector world. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I went in 
to academia, as I said, about 20 years ago. And art fairs, while they existed, they did not have like the incredible presence that they now have and the power that they have. And even still, same thing with social media and even websites. Like these were nowhere near as important back then as they are now. And so there, I feel like I'm playing a lot of catch up, but trying to just sort of get up to speed with like, how people are able to find their their niche the they you know so how artists can find collectors how curators can find artists how you know all these different kinds of things and these connections and and so i'm basically what i'm doing i'm trying to ask people who have some knowledge and experience in these things what their experiences are and so that's what i'm here to ask you about right well let me before you ask me let me ask you how do artists find collectors <laughs> Because I would really like to know. Right, because on top of all these other things that you do, you are also a practicing artist yourself. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's where it started, for sure. So, I mean, so as as a practicing artist yourself, how do you find these kinds of things? Do, do you, I mean, so how do you find collectors? Uh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, that's the short answer. I, I hate to be so, I hate to, hate to take the wind out of our sails, especially your listener sales, but it's been great no, having me, you me, on. Me, Thank you for your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse You're me. welcome. And uh, have a good one. Certainly an obvious answer that you, you, a lot of listeners I think can anticipate is, you know, you could be on Instagram or other social media. Certainly Instagram is the best known, you know, and you can put your work up there and you, and you could potentially find an audience, including people who will buy it. And those people become collectors, right? So that's the new, model via social media. Um, as far as having a collector base, you know, that is so dominated by the gallery system that the best way to do it is to somehow get representation, you know, and that's a lot easier said than done. There's another model that I remember Neil Jenny, the painter, uh, belonged to, which was that he somehow managed to cultivate a collector base himself and sell directly to collectors. I think this was in the 80s, starting in the 80s. But I mean, I, I think it, it tends to take, a, you know, a lot of luck, a lot of scrappiness. Um, maybe, you know, it sometimes it's, it, it relies heavily on how marketable one's work is, you know, and so on. Yeah, I mean, I don't so I'm, I'm kind of throwing out a bunch of different arrows you know, or lines, connect, potentially connecting lines, but I can't give you, I, I'm not the best person to, to give you the five steps to having collectors start collecting. Under no work. circumstances am I expecting you to have any answers for any of my questions as far as this kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I, in all seriousness, I don't expect anybody to know everything uh -huh. about anything. Um, but how, how about some experiences that you've had? Have, have you had any positive uh, feedback experiences from, let's say you brought up social media. So like, have you had any like actual sales that you can sort of point to ABC? I posted this on social media and it drew, it created this sale for me. Good question. No, I have not. Um, my work is, it sounds like a huge excuse, but my work definitely does not translate, particularly my recent work, Cyanotypes on Canvas, does not translate particularly well to a social, tiny social media photograph platform. I will say, though, that having been said, that an art, a listener of my podcast, an artist himself, Casey Jack Smith, 
started a an online sort of auction platform for smaller works that would go to you know buyers with with modest incomes you know or modest uh, budgets mm -hmm. and the artists would get to take a nice percentage and so i sold a couple of things through that platform which was a combination of being on the website and then social media posts as well and i don't know because neither of the two collectors told me whether they bought my pieces partially because of knowing me from the podcast or simply because they saw the work and they wanted it that's the best example I can give. Um, that's the closest to social media, but alas, my work is not the work that I've been making. Like I said, is really hard to capture in a digital form. Right. Yeah. I mean, because I've been trying things like Saatchi and all these other online platforms to try sales, and I've talked to some people who've tried these kinds of things, and I oftentimes it's one of those things where I I feel like there's this difficult sort of balance that a shift of power that sort of has sort of happened in the past 15 years or so where it used to be the days where it was a natural thing that like an artist made art and he handed it off to a, a consultant or a art gallerists and then they and then the gallery put in the time and the energy to do all the sales but there seems to be this shift of sort of handing a lot of that job back to the artist to like they have to do the work uh, you know, so whether it's posting on social media or updating their profiles on Saatchi or continually updating their website and maybe even creating like a little e-commerce page on their website, like a lot of that is, seems to be handed back to artists. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, it's it's inverse proportion to how big an artist you are, right? The bigger the artist you are, the more everything gets done for you. The smaller the artist you are, the the more you have to do yourself. Well, it seems like there's like this middle thing, like like the online avenue, so like the selling through a website or selling you know uh, this kind of stuff. There seems to be a price point that it like below a certain price point, it's kind of easy to sell volume, and then above a certain price point, like you know million dollars, like super high blue chip stuff, those are also easy to sell. It's everybody in the middle that you know, that aren't doing like super cheap volume prints and aren't prestige artists they're the ones that are struggling sure well yeah there's there's long been this notion of the mid-tier gallery you know being in a really rough place because they sell their price point is that sort of five or ten thousand to maybe a hundred thousand range which you know even at a hundred thousand i guess in theory in this in this example isn't high enough to be the sure thing of the blue chip per se. Um, and so, you know, yeah. And, and it's like the other aspect of the challenge of the quote unquote mid-tier gallery is that they're, you know, they don't have the easy sort of dynamic with all of the top collectors that the big boys and girls do, the big, the big galleries do. And then the merging galleries are sort of taking up all the entry level you know, type work as far as it costs. So that's kind of what the theory looks like. Um, obviously, it's much more complicated. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you think that sort of easy sale point is? How low is that? I mean, are we talking about like $100 and less or what? 
Well, see, unfortunately, I think that also falls to a bit of a regional thing because, you know, like I, sure. I live here, like I lived in Abu Dhabi before I lived here in Prague. Now, you know, a, a moderate priced piece of artwork in Abu Dhabi was $5,000, whereas a moderate priced piece of artwork in, in Prague is $50. So, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So you must have an awesome collection then based on that model. I wish. Yeah, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, have you, but have you seen any work in Prague for 50 bucks that you thought, that, I want that? Uh, works on paper. There actually right. There's some really beautiful graphic works that are very reasonably priced in this region, mm-hmm. yes. Got it. Yeah, there's a very strong uh, printmaking history here, and they have some beautiful uh, pr- uh, graphic works. Yeah, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but again, that goes back to the volume, low price kind of thing, because they, of course, they're making additions. I mean, I've I've got to sit here and digest everything you just said and think about another question to to go from there. So like, it, take, <laughs> right. it takes a second. Well, I appreciate that you don't have a list of questions in front. No, of you. I am not a journalist. I have no preconceived right. ideas here. I mean, what what I uh, you know, it's funny. I was trying to think about this, like before I get on with a guest, I always think like, so like, why do I do what I do? And why am I asking the kinds of questions I'm asking kind of thing? And like, basically like I go back to when I used to learn as a student and, and I always like, if somebody just gave me a fact, it wouldn't mean anything to me. I didn't know how to incorporate it into my life and my experience and my understanding. But when somebody gave me like an anecdote or a story that I could then somehow sort of like laugh at or, or sort fit into my sort of lexicon of my life kind of thing I would learn that thing a lot easier and a lot faster yeah and so you know so what I am trying to do is I'm trying to ask people to offer some stories some anecdotes that that you know in the end now they may not sound they may not feel like like pearls of wisdom or, or that you're teaching or anything but but simply by hearing other people's experiences people learn right I couldn't agree more. I, I definitely part of my sort of previewing a, a candidate for the show is getting them to maybe, if not give me a preview of an anecdote or two, to definitely plan to have some, which is usually a, ca- a ca- cause for danger because then, you know, in the recording itself, you, you're, I'm really sort of banking on you know this being good stuff when i don't know it's going to be so it's probably better in theory that i actually have heard the anecdote but on the other hand sometimes i've heard anecdotes or general kind of philosophies about something or other and i think oh that'll be great you know we'll dig into that and then when it comes down to it you know they kind of hold back you know they're not as free flowing about that thing that they have as they have a strong opinion about as I had anticipated they were going to be. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. P- people and also when people get on podcasts or any sort of interviewee thing, they, they feel like, but like you said before, like they, that they shouldn't ha- allow for dead air to happen. And it's perfectly fine to be thinking. I mean, if worse comes to worse, if it was a long pregnant pause, I can actually edit it down to a shorter pause. So, well, what do you fine. think, Matt, the longest pregnant pause that you've left in a recording that you an episode that you've put out so far? <laughs> Probably only like 
two or three seconds. It was be okay. about the next. All right. Usually it's me uh, <laughs> that, yeah, I, yeah. that I let it because because I stutter a lot and I sit and I I, I try to create emphasis and, and and deepen my voice and make it sound more dramatic. And I, right. And I like so what I'm thinking. Yeah. Is this? <laughs> kind of, but it doesn't yeah. work. But yeah. Anyways, so back to the business of the whole thing. So sure. So you run a podcast. You are a practicing artist yourself. What else are you doing these days? Well, I do another podcast. I don't know if you saw that anywhere. It's called How I Get By, and I started that in September 2018. Uh, it was. It took. It was a long time, sort of, in the making, uh, and and now it's sort of slowed down from its initial uh, pace. But part of the reason that I started is because I felt like I wanted to have a podcast that could reach a lot of people or more people than I felt like I was reaching with the art podcast. You know, because I, the sort of thinking being that the art world's conscious or interested audience, you know, who actually would listen to a podcast about it is only finite. That actually has changed more recently because there have been a couple of pretty big, or at least one in particular that was profiled in a big paper was profiled recently that seems to be getting a lot of traction, which makes me, of course, incredibly envious. But um, Well, I was going to say, your podcast is literally on like every list of best art podcasts that exists. Well, if, if you don't, I appreciate that. And I, I would like to think that that's true. But uh, if you... If you and your listeners could indulge me a moment of bitterness, I just last weekend, I had it had come out, I think maybe a good several days before, but last weekend I, so every Sunday I go through the digital version of the New York Times, not all of it, but just certain select sections of it. And, and that includes the arts and, um, you know, the fine arts section and the LA based journalist who writes for the New York Times put together a list of 10 binge-worthy art podcasts. And guess who wasn't on it? <laughs> and guess how frustrating and even livid that made me. So yeah, anyway, I, I'm glad to hear that that is what you've found, but most recently from a resource that could have been potentially a game changer in terms of my audience growth, it did not happen. So, okay, bitterness may be over for now. All right. I, it's a worthwhile bitterness, though. I I completely understand it and appreciate it. I mean, I'm still, you know, this podcast is still very new in the grand scheme of podcasting. Um, and of course, we're not on any list whatsoever. So, you know, I aspire to even get on a list, much less mm -hmm, such mm -hmm. a list as the New York Times binge-worthy podcasts. That would be amazing. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I think I brought that up too because as I was talking about why I started How I Get By, which is about how people get by financially. And I can talk to you more about that if it, if it feels relevant to our conversation. That but, sounds completely relevant. I love yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Well, the reason, again, the re to clarify, the reason that I largely started is because I wanted to have the opportunity to have a bigger audience. But through podcasts such as a couple of the ones one in particular that were mentioned in that list that I just referred to. There are art podcasts that are getting a big audience. And I can't figure out how they do that other than the fact that I know that one of the two hosts is a pretty well-known actor and has a 
bit of a you know a minor celebrity sort of platform i don't know to what extent that contributes to it you know um what what podcast are you talking about i think it's called talk art yeah i believe that's what it's called they were they were profiled in the new york times and and then in this at the top of this list i mentioned as well so yeah they've gotten become much more popular and you're right there is one of them that i believe is a comedian oh one of them's a comedian no i I don't think think it's a comedian isn't he's an actor an an actor. actor okay yeah yeah exactly I don't know how popular like the, you know what? I'm not even going to go down that road because this is more speculation about other podcasts. But yeah, um, you can ask me, I'll just clarify regarding how I get by that some people were under the impression that I would be talking to artists about how they get by. And my response was, no, I'm trying to get out of the art world niche, you know, because I felt like that's too small. I want why would people who are not interested in art want to listen to an artist talk about how they get by? I wanted to talk to anybody about how they get by. And indeed, there are very few. I don't know if there are any fine artists on that, the show so far. There are definitely people who do arts to art, arts like pursuits. But um, it's a range, a wide range of people doing a wide range of things that are, have been guests so far. What I find interesting is like you're one of the more well-established. I mean, you've been doing your podcast for nine years and you're saying that like you can't get enough of an audience. That is um, sort of depressing for me <laughs> because I yeah, just made you know, a podcast. I mean, I, I think this is a this is a occupational hazard of being an art podcaster or a podcaster in general for that matter. But yeah, I mean, look, it could very well be that I'm not hip enough or cool enough and I don't have hip enough or cool enough uh, guests like the talk art podcast I, I wanted to say to this writer who came up with this list, this list okay fine you didn't put me on your list give me some feedback then what what do I need to do to make your list you know okay this this is one of my pet peeves about the art world as a whole so I'm okay. going to take your your example sure. for a podcast and desiring to get feedback to try and do better and I'm going to expand it even larger I really resent the way that the granting system and the residency system and any other sort of thing that comes with an artist applying to something uh, basically you sit there and you will work for days or weeks or months writing a grant or applying for a residency residency or in your case building up a podcast and building up a network and you put it out there and the answer is either yes or no but they don't tell you what you've done wrong so you don't know how to do it any better next time that's right yep yeah and i have two examples in in that vein one is creative capital which does the creative capital grants which are quite substantial i think they give out a slew of them each year, you know, uh, these creative capital grants for progressive, you know, artists and projects. But I applied a couple years ago for the podcast and got rejected. And I wrote an email asking for feedback and they said, no, we don't, we don't provide feedback. However, I will say by contrast, an organization that I applied for based in the Bay Area. Um, I'm blanking on their name. I apologize, but it's something like Center for Cultural Innovation. I think that's what it's called. They helm a grant that is like an emergency. Sorry, is an emergency grant or I think it's like a small last minute grant. I don't remember. Yeah, like a a $1,000 grant or something. Uh, Yeah, even less, you know, like as little as 500 or, or even, you know, somewhere in that neighborhood dollars. But in any case, 
I applied to them for a small grant for a seminar or a symposium or a conference, I think it was, that was going to be a couple days long about the art market that was going to take place in L.A., you know, and it was like a $300 plus type deal. And so I applied for, they actually recommended it, the uh, the organization. You can apply for these, you know, emergency or, or small grants and, you know, cover your expenses. So I applied to that and, and I didn't get it. But they said, feel free to get in touch with us and we will give you feedback on your grant so that next time you have a better chance of getting it. Yeah. And I'm, I believe that some organizations are doing a better job with attempting to give feedback, constructive feedback so that people can do it better next time. But that unfortunately that's the minority as far as my experiences are not the majority. Right. Okay. And and I'm, I really want that feedback because I mean, the bottom line is, is we're, we're all still growing and we're all making mistakes, but we all like to learn from our mistakes because we don't like making mistakes twice. I really wish there was some way to get more constructive feedback about things like grant applications, um, residency applications, these kinds of things to be able to do them better. I mean, even even down to artist statements, because don't even get me started on artist statements. I have such a pet peeve about artist statements. Mm-hmm. I won't get you started, but I will point out if you if for you and listeners who are, who do not know, but I my biggest pet peeve around the art conversation uh, landscape is the P word, as I call it, which is the word practice used in noun form as in my art P word. Um, I try to avoid saying it out loud or, you know, in full. Um, Yeah. And we we don't have to talk about that. I just wanted to mention that um, since you mentioned one of your big pet peeves. Oh, you're welcome to go on about it. I mean, we're here to talk with you about your experiences. If you have a pet peeve, I want to hear about it. <laughs> so, 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 like the term, we're not going to use it. So, the, the P word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My bottom line is, is like, I'm just annoyed with the whole construct that the art world has built up. That basically, a person who has chosen to be a visual artist, that they're most effective and most uh, expressive way of, of expressing their ideas to the world is through visual arts are now also obligated to be eloquent writers when we have chosen not to be writers, but to be visual artists. Yeah, that's an interesting, I mean, that is a little bit of an anti-intellectual angle. I do get it, you know, in theory, there is this history that's probably pretty long now. Certainly Cal Arts is one of the, the epicenters of it. But this, this, this concept of being able to articulate what you're doing in your work. But that, is, that, that sort of ideology has spread you know, throughout art institutions. I do get in theory that if somebody makes really strong work, they don't have to be an expert in articulating what it's about. But a lot of time, I think it's justified because work can either be cryptic or it can be unresolved in the worst cases, you know, and so on. So sometimes, but but it can also be dogma, you know, so that's that's sort of the other side of the coin, you know. And there is also, I'll just say one more thing and then I'll let you jump in, but there's definitely a school of artists who have managed to get to a place of notoriety and success without having been sort of speakers on behalf of their work. They've let other people do it for them. 
one of my positions is, is that I feel like the there are certain artworks that are produced by artists, certain styles, techniques, whatever you want to put to it, such as basically conceptual work. Like the strong, the more conceptual a piece of art is, the I do feel that the ability to have text with it to somehow um, expand on and sort of uh, create a bit more engagement and understanding is actually very important for that style of work. Whereas like if somebody just makes a beautiful thing, an object thing, and it can just be appreciated for its simple uh, aesthetics, then I don't feel like there needs to be that. The, the necessity for the text is not there. So heavy concept, I actually feel like there should be a very eloquent statement with it. Now, right. within, that, within that though, I love the idea of having, let's say, an independent curator or even a very good curator or or an author or a, just a general writer, whatever, collaborating with artists to create eloquent text that goes with their work. I think that is a magnificent idea, and I don't understand why that's not widely accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to say one more thing about it, and then I want to go back to feedback because I don't want to forget about that. But I will just say that to your point about a beautiful object, I was thinking of gallery promotional emails, right? I mean, that is like the the core of that type of phenomena. You've got really formal work and then you have these spiels that describe, you know, and contextualize what the work is. And, yeah, well, and, contextualize is a great word for that. But more importantly, it's a way of marketing the work to, I mean, it's really unclear. It's a case-by-case basis, of course, but it's really unclear who they're marketing to. You, you think maybe that it's for the collectors, you know? Um, certainly when it comes to the artist's biography, you know, to their, their track record, the collectors are more on board you know, based on more of a track record. But as far as the description, you know, that this formal thing is about this, this, and this, you know, I got to wonder, is that for the writer, you know, for critics who are going to write about it? I write, have written about art myself. Um, and I usually find that kind of stuff blowhardian, you know? Um, oh yeah. It's just pompous art speak. Often, often. Yes. Yes. But, but, but let me, if, if I may pivot back to feedback, Absolutely. I would love to know what feedback you have received thus far from doing this podcast. Uh, from doing the podcast? This podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> to be blatantly honest, none. Mm-hmm. Is that disappointing? Very. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 would love f- more feedback. I would love any feedback, but of course I want it to be constructive, not just critical. Right. Um, so, you know, helpful, op- you know, uh, it could be phrased in a negative, so critical feedback that can be helpful to making it better. Yeah, I've gotten none. Um, I don't know what I'm doing wrong as far as building a community and, and engaging people more in conversations, but no. Um, which, uh, you know, it's one of those mixed bags. Like, cause I, again, I come from academia and 
a lot of my students don't love asking questions because they, for whatever reason, they're fearful or whatever, you know, they don't like engaging in, in too much uh, stuff because people are afraid of looking not very intelligent, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, I'm in some ways I appreciate that people are listening and I love that, but some amount of feedback to tell me what I'm doing well or what I'm doing poorly or... Well, I mean, what I found is, is that basically like I can walk into a conversation with a set of questions I want to ask, but the honest truth is any person that I get in as a guest may not either have knowledge, expertise, or experience in right. any of those questions. So I, I'm, I'm allowing for your knowledge, your expertise, and your experiences to guide this conversation because I don't know you. I've never met you before today. And so I don't know what wealth of knowledge and, and information and experiences that you could bring, bring to this that if I came in with a set of questions, That's I might miss right. out on. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I think until you start to get from somebody and find certain nerves, hit on certain nerves or veins or whatever metaphor you want to use, it's only then that you start to find out what you want to know more about. You know, you could look at somebody on paper and sometimes you could predict what you really want to know about. Like they did a certain project that is like seems right up your alley. Right. But a lot of the time it's just a general profile that you're starting with and you have to sort of dig down in where the most interesting bits are. Indeed. And, and I never know what they're going to be. It, it's just sort of, uh, again, like most of these, you know, these interviews are reasonably cold. Uh, like, and I mean cold in the yeah. manner that like yeah. I only know you on paper prior to getting you on this recording. So therefore, I don't know your sense of humor. I don't know what you find interesting, you know, the, you know these kinds of little nuances. And I don't know like little pet peeves of yours, like the P word. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this, I wonder if that's something that I should make more public. I'm not sure it would be a good idea, but I actually have sort of in contrast to your style, which is a, a, a bit more like the style that I employed at the beginning of doing a conversation, uh, screening of guests and also using a, I used to use actually kind of almost like a, a fact, I used a fact sheet, I called it, but now it's just an FAQ of sort of guidelines including the P word. I, it used to be like, don't say the P word, but then I sort of made it more casual to, do I have, I have one pet peeve, it's the P word. It, you know, if you can avoid saying it, that'd be great. But if you, you know, but I won't penalize you if you do it. There was a period where I was actually bleeping the word when people said it, but I gave them a warning about it beforehand. Um, one person, one individual was helping me out with the podcast. For a while was re kind of really came down hard on me and i think too hard but i did take her point that you know having a little bit of leeway might be a good idea but then i've one of the things i've always said about this word and, and you can probably apply it to your own sort of pet peeves or or um triggers or whatever is that the more people say it the more serious they are you know the less of a sense of humor they have of course, that's a bit of an absolutism, but there's so much truth in it. 
Oh, I, I will fully admit I have zero interest in sitting here and talking about your art concepts. Like to me, an artist concept is is great, and I love it. And and when I go to a gallery or a museum and I and I read about their ideas of their work, I think that's absolutely magnificent. If I have friends over to my studio or I go over to their studio and they want to talk about their concepts, all about it, love it. But as a as a listener of a podcast, I don't get much from just hearing about <laughs> some other artists uh, you know ideas of why they're making their work i almost said the p word there so <laughs> the con the the concepts behind their work it's it's uh, i don't find it necessarily that compelling but mostly but also on the other hand I believe there's a, a wealth of resources out that already exist in the world where anybody can basically hear all the greats in the arts world talking about their their ideas and their concepts and how they got to their certain mediums and their certain expressions and all this kinds of stuff. And so like I'm I don't think there's anything new I can add to that right. conversation, no pun intended. But the idea of this podcast is to try okay. and help people to hear other people's experiences of how to have more successful creative careers by by hearing other people's successes and failures and um, things that they have found that either work for them or don't work for them because it, it's sort of the, uh, uh, you know, all ships, right. uh, when the tide comes in, all ships rise. Like, so if everybody has the access to all this information, we all should be doing better. And hopefully like my dream for the future is that the term starving artist leaves the world's vocabulary because we, none of us are going to be in that sort of genre ever again. Hmm. That's a big ask. Big ask you got there. <laughs> that's my soapbox. There you yeah, go. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's my soapbox. That's what I want. Okay, well then, how do you think, and you know, take this with a grain of salt and don't take it like I said, how is our talking about our respective frustrations with not getting enough feedback going to help people? <laughs> to, to make them prepared for the reality of a uh, not getting enough feedback? <laughs> Well, partly, partly it's by, yes, that, agreed. Partly it also makes them feel um, right. not alone yeah. because they realize that other people don't give feedback because part of the creative process in this day and age is the sort of, I feel like I'm the only one yeah. going through this. In the spirit of giving experiential advice, I would like to offer this, if nothing else, and the rest of the time we can just you know, go off on these crazy tangents and, and talk on these various meta levels. But I would say for anybody that happens to be listening, who is an undergraduate or a graduate student at an art school or in an art program at a university, find a mentor and become a teacher's assistant and milk those for everything they're worth. Absolutely. I went to Hunter College for graduate school. And at the time I was there, I was, I didn't, there was not a very good faculty. And there were very limited situations. It wasn't like the UC schools, like where every class has a teacher's assistant. There were very few classes that had teacher's assistants. And I didn't even start to learn about it until like a couple, a semester or so in to the program, but 
there was this phenomena where people who were particularly friendly to the style and ideology of the chairman became these sort of pets, you know, and they got teaching assistantships and, and in a couple of cases went on to become adjunct teachers at that school. And that's how it works a lot of places, actually. I don't think it is typically so, you know, hyper connected in terms of like following the master's, you know, form or, or sensibility as it was in this case. But there's definitely... All Come to Europe. It, it's still true. Oh, here. it's still true there. Right. So this was a model that was playing oh, out, yeah. that you guys have that was playing out at Hunter College and probably is still playing out maybe in Europe. But yeah, that's 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 pretty sad, isn't it? Yeah, here in Europe, it's very, very much still the uh, master apprentice right. situation where you know galleries and curators and institutions basically they will literally follow the lineage of people. They'll be like, so who did you study with? What you know, whose atelier were you in? And they they will choose to represent or exhibit or buy works based on who your master was almost as much as the quality of the work. Right. I find it very awkward because because like I actually got to Europe and I started, I went I went and applied for a job to teach and one of my the the guy who interviewed me said, "Well, who is your your supervisor? Like who is your mentor?" And I was like, "I'm from America. I, I we didn't have mentors right. there. Like that's not the way it's done yeah. in the American institution generally." Yeah. And and I made the mistake, and I mean, following along with your anecdote, like I made the mistake of not befriending enough of my teachers in grad school. I mean, a number of the people that I graduated with that did befriend or or work with or TA for uh, some of my professors, they ended up sort of becoming art stars in their own way because of the network and the connections that those relationships were able to foster for them. That. I didn't make because of whatever reason, either I wasn't good enough or I wasn't uh, able to play that networking game quite as uh, effectively as my other colleagues would yeah. could. There it is. There it is in a nutshell. If you need advice, if listeners want practical advice, especially obviously if they're young, you know, or artists who are still in school, they don't necessarily have to be young, but network the hell out of it. <laughs> That's it. You know, not only find a mentor if you can, it, it'll be obviously a much more informal dynamic in the States, but befriend all of the faculty that you can, you know, so that they become champions in one way or another of yours after you're done with school. That it makes all the difference in a career right there. Oh, yeah, it definitely does. But I mean, there's a balancing act on that because like... Yeah, it's so stupid because maybe I'm socially inept in many ways. I don't know. But like there's a difficult balancing act to creating those connections and networks because they're on the one hand, you can easily fall into what I would call sort of too friendly and too unprofessional. And on the other hand, you can be too professional and, and sort of look like you're being too cunning and planning and tr and conniving to try and manipulate your way into mm -hmm. something. And so it's the difficult balance is to try and find you don't want to just be their friends because as their friends, they kind of won't help you out necessarily as much. And if you end up being too cunning and conniving, they won't like you and they also won't help you. So there's a beautiful sweet spot in the middle 
that I cannot do. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That makes sense. I don't know if it's always that, you know, restrictive where you have to be so in that little perfect zone. But I would just say, you know, for example, if you are at an institution where there are artists who hire studio assistants, you know, if you can get one of those jobs, that would be a really good way to gain some real world experience and, and, you know, develop a relationship with them outside of school. You know, and it's just a question of getting that foot in the door. It doesn't matter if you come across as crosses, you know, overly cunning or if you're too passive or whatever, as long as you can figure out how to get that foot in the door. I, you know, ask for your colleagues advice. Find out, simply find out from either a current studio assistant of the person you want to work for or if you can, somebody who has been in the past, you know, what would you do if you were me? Ask them that question. The, the assistant sort of avenue of doing things is amazing. Like I still kick myself years ago. I, I don't know if I did like this was the best thing that ever happened to my career or the worst thing. But when I finished my undergraduate program, I had gotten accepted to be Richard Avedon's assistant. Wow. Yeah, well, let me finish the story. So <laughs> I got accepted to be Richard Avedon's assistant. And he said, yes, I'd like you in New York on this particular day. And I had to call him back and I had to say, I'm sorry, I can't make it on that day because that day is commencements. It's the day I have to walk across the stage and get my diploma and my family's already bought their tickets and they're already coming and, and all that and I can't make it. I can make it the next day. And he said, if you can't make it on the day I need you, then I don't need you. Wow. And so I didn't get what to a bastard. apprentice. So yeah, I didn't get to be Richard Avedon's assistant. Was he known as was he known as a uh, a real hard ass? I have no idea, and Matt? quite honestly, that's literally the first time I've told that story in like twenty years. Because it's still a bit of a, a sore sore spot for me. Wow. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, I can imagine. That's. I mean, I I think any anybody in their right mind would have done exact same thing as you. I mean, only like a psycho you know, ladder climber would have just said, fuck commencement. I got to be at Richard Avenue. And can you imagine what working for him would have been like if that's, you know, the way he worked? Yeah. Like I said, I'm not sure if it was the best thing or the worst thing that happened in my career, but either I dodged a bullet or I didn't, (laughs) but you know, you can't go back and change the past. Yeah. Well said. Well said. When it comes to your own artwork and your own uh, sort of getting your work to the public, how are you finding um, an avenue to take your work from the studio and get it to exhibition or to a curator or to a collector? So like, basically what I'm looking for is like, social media, website, grant writing, uh, are you applying for exhibitions? Do you do portfolio reviews? Like what are some of the techniques that, that you're using? Because, and the, the, the reason why I'm really interested in this is because you have this very long, uh, you know, 200, almost 250 episodes of your podcast where you've been talking to creative people and you've been hearing some of these stories. So like, what have you garnered from those conversations again, no pun intended, and, and integrated into your own creative career. It, it hasn't been as practical as you might, as you sort of made it sound. And in fact, I haven't 
asked too many questions in the realm of, you know, how did you get from here to here or what have you. In fact, a lot of the time, the way that artists guess, and they're not all artists, by the way, have described their success or their, you know, their being where they are is almost sort of an afterthought. It's almost, it just kind of hap- has happened. Um, it's been implied in a lot of cases. And this is something that I, I struggle with myself. So listener, take comfort in our shared struggle. I would say, you know, social media, Instagram in particular, though I have not used it pr- particularly pro- prolifically for my work of late, it is one good way and, and, and sort of democratizing way to share your work. It's not necessarily, especially if it's not super, you know, commercially accessible and, and um, you know, reads well in that small digital platform. It's not necessarily lead to, to you know, a lot of sales but, um, or, or gallery opportunities, but it, it's, it's a way to, for people to see it and, you know, maybe get studio visits or what have you. I think networking and relationships is really always, you know, going back to our early, the earlier part of our conversation is, is still one of the tried and true ways of, you know, getting your work into other people's hands, getting it, you know, to in front of the eyes of collectors and whatnot. I had a studio visit with a gallerist fairly recently and that gallerist recommended some places to try to pitch my work to. One of them was a director of a, of a gallery at a, at a u- local college or university who I reached out to, who I had actually had some communication with several years ago. And I reached out to her mentioning this gallerist and, you know, who I guess they have some kind of relationship and said that, you know, this gallerist suggested reaching out to you. I'm doing this housing based work and you know thought you might be interested i haven't heard back from her i may not um you know when you it's tricky whenever you're sort of soliciting somebody without a real solid entry point you know which is to say that they've invited you to reach out to them or a friend or mutual friend has connected you you know very explicitly it it tends to be a solicitation type dynamic, you know, where you're asking them, you know, to for a favor to, to you know, to, to take some interest in what you're doing to come to your studio. And those odds are small. You know, that's just the way it works. So, you know, I've this podcast has actually afforded me, you know, some people have asked, is this like a form of your art? And I tend to say, no, this is a form of podcasting, you know, and conversation and talking about art and about what goes on in the art world or art worlds plural and so on and it had but it has been a way to connect with more people than i otherwise would have so for sure you know and so that has led to things um i one funny story is that i actually wrote a, a review several years ago of a of a painter's show and that was generally positive and he was he reached out to me was really appreciative and he recommended me to a a artist run gallery and long story short I ended up having a show there so you know it's like little things like that that are so unpredictable you know and so unplanned that though from from my experience those are the kinds of things that make you take steps forward for me when you sort of take the type a approach 
you know, which I and I you may have already gathered, listener <laughs> and Matt, that I am not particularly a type A person. That might work for some people, but for me, you know, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. You know what I mean? Like, sure, you can start a mailing list and you can cultivate all these people's business cards and or, you know, what have you and send out a MailChimp, you know, every couple months with your updates, you know, but that's really not I don't have very many updates, you know, whenever somebody tells me things like email lists and and email newsletters, I, I literally just I, I just I, I'm it, it pains me because I don't like receiving right. those. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the idea that I would then make one and send it out and annoy other people in <laughs> yeah. the same way that they annoy me, right. it just pains me. Like, so that to me, that's a really tough one. I mean, cause I've, a lot of people have said, you know, Oh, create an email list and keep your collectors updated and all this. And I'm just like, no, I no. I mean, we're, we're inundated enough with enough crappy emails and a crappy and, 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 horrible things on our social media feeds and all this stuff that we don't want to know about. Last thing I need to do is like add to it. Uh, you know, that's the thing is like, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to find, so like literally for me in my practice, I'm trying to find a unique way to uh, get that avenue to new people that um, it's not, it's not like that hasn't been done before, but like that is true to what I do and right. doesn't annoy people. Has this podcast helped you in that regard? Um, yes, actually. Um, I, I've met a couple curators who have, have turned around and actually, like one of them has actually offered me a solo exhibition and another one has, uh, has said that they will help me write uh, my next artist statement. So That's incredible. The curators have been very That's helpful. Incredible. You got um, a so, solo yeah. show offered yeah. by a curator. That's incredible. I did. It, it sounds way more prestigious okay. than it really is. I promise it's not as prestigious okay. as it is because I didn't That's tell you fair. where it is, but, yeah. but it's still, but it's still, uh, it's nice that, yeah, I mean, and, and I've made exponentially stronger networks and relationships. Like for instance, um, you know, all day yesterday I was finishing up a, a grant that I was writing, which is of course why grants and writing is on my mind that, um, in order to do this grant, I had to partner with a series of other organizations in order to show that it's, uh, it's a broader, more international program. And so, of course, I had to approach some of the, the more prestigious and better places to try to get the most prestigious names on the grant. And in doing so, I ended up making some nice connections and bonds with some people at very, really interesting and unique and powerful institutions uh, that I never would have had the opportunity to even send an email to right. them before right. without the podcast. So it, it does have, it does have little tangential things and, it, you know, the, yeah, the, the one thing that I keep harping on and, and I say this a lot in the podcast, but I'll say it again, is that like an art career is, is a lifetime thing. It's not a short term game. It's, it's, you're playing, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, you're playing a long con. So like you're in it for the rest of your life. You're not just in it until you quit your job because you're never going to quit being an artist, hopefully. 
and so it's it's a long-term thing so you have to use each of the incremental things you have to use all the small things to slowly build up like a a snowball going down a hill like it's not going to be a massive snowball at the top of the hill and it has to have the time and the space and the energy to get to the bottom of the hill so it just it's it's a long slow process of incremental gains and hopefully not losses Oh no, there are always losses. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I, as a photographer early in my career, I like, I, I'm always, I was always losing money with exhibitions because I, as a photographer, I had to pay to frame all the works right. just to be able to even put them in an exhibition, and I rarely right. ever made my money back right. even off the frames. Mm-hmm. But I'm a horrible snob. I don't like showing photographs without frames. I feel like they're unfinished. Mm-hmm. As a general whole. Right. I'm, there are photographs I've seen beautifully presented without a frame, but I'm tr- a bit of a traditionalist that way. Yeah. When I started this podcast, the idea was is that I want people to be able to listen to the podcast and find little nuggets of, of knowledge that assist them in ga- becoming more successful in their own creative careers. Okay. But what I realized is that it's a, it's a nebulous thing. Like there's no quantifiable outcome to know that this has been helpful or successful in any way for anybody's careers. So I created an arbitrary choice of a, of a quantifiable outcome that I'm trying to achieve through my, the knowledge that I gain by these conversations with people in the arts world. So what I would like to know from you is what can I do in my artistic career to put myself on the right path to get a single piece of my existing artwork on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. <laughs> wow. Um, well, you could... that's, that's my goal. Sure. The first step is to have the intention and have the objective or the goal. Other than having the intention, you know, you just... The, the, the simple truth is that you can the most control that you have is to keep working and make the best work that you can. It's it's all that includes being aware of the ongoing dialogues and, you know, being aware of what work is validated, you know, museum validated and so on. And, you know, of course there's the whole networking thing, like getting in with certain curators and so on. But being outside of New York and then even being outside of the States, it, it gets the further away from New York you get, the trickier I would say it gets just to be realistic. So I would say be as big an, an artist as you can be. <laughs> you know, you know there, there are some circumstances in which people get into MoMA because they met or got connected with a curator there you know and the curator liked the work and wanted it to be included in the collection you know it sounds obviously infinitely more simple than it is but there's no direct path you know uh, those things that i mentioned no everybody's path will be unique no i'm not saying there's no i'm not saying there's no i'm not saying there's only one path i'm just saying that the path is meandering and long. 
Yeah. The one thing I've learned rather dramatically is, is that the curators and, and I'm, maybe it's independent curators, maybe it's institutional curators. I don't know, but curators are the gatekeepers of the arts industry. Like if you want to get into a gallery, you got to go through a curator. If you want to get into a collection, you got to go through a curator. You want to get into an institutional exhibition, got to go through a curator. So like the, the curators have all like everything funnels through them no matter where you want to go. And so like making strong relationships with curators is of the utmost importance for a successful creative career these Hmm. days. Yeah, it doesn't have to be actually, but because because you did say you did say curators for galleries, that's not actually true. Gallerists are the gatekeepers for their galleries. Curators are not. Curators are will sometimes come in and curate a, a, a group show or a solo show at a gallery, but they are you know more freelance or on a consultant based for a gallery type situation. So you could you could have a strong financial career with a gallery and not be, you know, validated by museums. That's true. Yeah, actually, I have a question because this has come up in Europe a few times is things about um, artists getting paid just, uh, it's generally an honorarium or a stipend, whatever, but like there, there's a movement in Europe where to encourage artists to be paid for exhibiting. Hmm. Wow. Coming from America, it's always, you know, in America, like you should be honored and privileged to have the opportunity to exhibit wherever. But here they're actually pushing to try and create a a standardized, like, so like if a, let's say a nonprofit or an NGO is of a certain level financially that they have to, they are obligated to pay artists X amount. And so the bigger the institution, the higher the pay for artists to exhibit in those spaces Mm. right yeah that's the leverage sort of a question of leverage again isn't it i just like the idea of at least getting some money because you know a lot of exhibitions that you do you end up losing money because your work doesn't sell or whatever i mean you might get some career advancement through somebody who sees your work or somebody you meet at the events but in the end we all still have to pay our bills yep yep for sure what do you do to pay your bills? Because like you said, you don't sell as much as you would like. So is your is the podcast like basically funding your life? Or is that no, substa- no, sustaining uh, you? No, the, the podcast is not uh, sustaining my life. Um, <laughs> no, the, in fact, the funds that have been coming on in of late are few and far between, alas. So I have done various things over the years. Most recently, I've been doing caregiving slash tutoring, basically as a way of getting by. And I've, you know, I've, um, there's some income from the podcast. Uh, I've made some income doing writing. Yeah, uh, and there are, I guess, some miscellaneous things here and there. But yeah, that's, that's what that landscape looks like. I again like one of my little like I want to try to build a world in the future where artists don't have to do four and five other side jobs to be able to fund or or be able to have the time or the space to do their work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, what, you know, having one job and then your art career, fine, I'm okay with that. That's acceptable. But like, more and more people that I know in the creative industries, either they're 
gig people. So like they're just working, you know, job to job or they're having to work many jobs, three, four jobs in order to cobble together enough money. And that's, that creates a, an anxiety and a stress on our lives that of course I feel like sort of takes away from our ability to be creative because we're too stressed about earning enough money or where's the next paycheck coming from or these kinds of things. And so we can't actually sort of put our time and energy and effort into making our best work. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a much, it would be a much more friendly livable world if those things were more as you say and make some headway in that but it's certainly a big job it's a giant rock to lift it's a career (laughs) yeah well okay all right i'm holding you to it i'll be leaving it to my children so that when they choose to go into the creative industries that they they will be able to be more successful than i can be okay got it if you're interested in hearing more of me uh and hopefully (laughs) sorry if you're not uh, if you've listened this far, you probably are. You can find the conversation online at theconversationpod.com. You can see my website, michaelshawstudio.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-H-A-W, studio.com. Um, and then the other podcast is How I Get By. You can find that at howigetbypodcast.com. And then if you're on a podcast platform whether apple podcast stitcher google play etc you might for the conversation you might have to look up the conversation unartist podcast that was the original title that i sort of signed up with and then just how i get by podcast on and maybe add michael shaw uh, for the other podcasts on either of those platforms so yeah if you want to check those out and let me know if you have any questions that would be awesome marvelous well thank you very much for your time yeah you bet good to talk to you man